0: Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. In today's episode, Trade and Sustainable Livelihood in Fragile Contexts, we are honored to have with us Dr. Gilles Cabernet. Gilles is the Vice President of the International Committee of the Red Cross. He is also a professor of development economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Prior to joining the Graduate Institute, Gilles worked with ICRC in the field from 1989 to 1991. Between 1992 and 96, he was also in charge of international trade negotiations under the Uruguay Round, and also in charge of economic development programs for the Swiss State Secretariat for Economic Affairs. He recently, Launched his latest book, which is Humanitarian Economics War, Disaster, and the Global Aid Market. Gilles, welcome to Trade for Peace.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Axel.
0: Now, Gilles, I often start our conversation with a question I ask all of our guests. And so, What does trade for peace mean to you?
1: Great question. I think for me, the answer is pretty straightforward. Trade actually provides an enabling environment for peace. It's as simple as that. If I look at the experience I have over the past few years with my own organization, the International Committee of the Red Cross, we are working in protracted armed conflicts all over the world. And what I see is that trade allows to reestablish and restore, strengthen the ties between peoples, between communities, nations, across lines and boundaries. And this is also a way to put sometimes mutual economic interests above immediate political tensions and enmities. And this is key, actually, to provide this enabling environment that is conducive to consolidating peace. And I think that this is, these days, even more important than before because the communities we are trying to protect and assist in protracted conflict are now facing the triple challenge of not only trying to survive in the midst of an armed conflict but also withstand the consequences of climate change and the pandemic. So in this context, I think that uh, trade is definitely an important aspect and vehicle that contributes
0: to greater stability and resilience. Thank you, Gilles. Thank you for your insights. Now, you've had a long stellar career as a practitioner in the humanitarian sector, working in the field and working at the senior level with the ICRC. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work of the ICRC in fragile and conflict-affected states and your journey into joining the ICRC?
1: Yeah, if I start with my journey, I think as a fresh graduate in economics, I wanted to do something to, to make the world a better place. So I decided to gain some practical, but also hands-on field work experience in international cooperation. And being Swiss, you know, in the Geneva region, of course, joining the International Committee of the Retros, which is headquarters here in Geneva, was uh, an attractive option. And from there, you know, I started to work by the was still the Cold War in, uh, by the end of the 80s in El Salvador, uh, Ethiopia, Iraq, Sri Lanka. And I tried to implement or apply my economic tools and methods that I had acquired in my studies to make sense of the reality I was facing at the local level. And I was struck by the disconnect between international, or let's say, grand analysis that was really anchored in the East-West rivalry that was anchored in ideological contestation, and the reality of violence on the ground, which was much more anchored in political economy dynamics, in political and economic differences, and in in issues which I think would deserve much more attention and were related sometimes with the question of agricultural rent uh, in uh, in trade relations and so forth. So. I could also appreciate how much informal activities are the norm and and contribute to to ensure survival and coping mechanisms for people struggling with crisis. And I'm sure that you actually yourself, being from Liberia, know much more about this reality. So Mm -hmm. now to the second question, how does the ICRC try to respond to the needs of communities in fragile and conflict environments? To make a long story short, our response is threefold. First, we try to limit the suffering and the needs by preventing violations of international humanitarian law, by promoting respect for the norms that uh, aim at to protect civilians, but also to protect civilian infrastructure, basic infrastructure such as uh, water provision systems, health systems, and, uh, and wastewater treatment, etc. And the second is not so much preventing, but it's trying to protect the most vulnerable, including forcibly displaced people and prisoners. And we strive actually to ensure that these people can enjoy humane and dignified treatment and living conditions in spite of the, the situation. And thirdly, and this is what maybe we see mostly in the media, we provide direct assistance to conflict affected populations food, healthcare, water, sanitation and the likes. But yet in today's armed conflicts which are protracted which affect sometimes several generations in a row, think of Afghanistan, think of South Sudan, Sudan, think of many contexts where we have been for decades, we seek to avoid that people become Dependent on charity on aid hands out over the long run, so we seek to help them get out of aid dependency as soon as possible by restoring their livelihood and helping them, for instance, to to find income generating opportunities. So, just an example across the Sahel, we provide cash grants to farmers so that they can buy drought resistant seeds or agricultural tools, and we also help vaccinate massively cattles in hard-to-reach areas. So we also maintain critical infrastructure like water provision and health systems so that people can access essential services. So these are the main ways we intervene, prevention, protection, and assistance, but assistance always with a way towards, I would say, recovery.
0: Thank you, Gilles. And how important is trade in these environments where ICRC operates?
1: It's very important. Of course, we have some instances in rural areas where I would say we are in closed economies where, uh, you know, there is maybe less trade and more self-sufficiency. But more often than not, especially now that we have armed conflict hitting also urban areas, trade among communities is a key factor of not only livelihood, but also social cohesion. And by fostering contacts, exchanges between them, I think it can really be a helpful vehicle to, to pave the way to restore, to restore peaceful coexistence. I would like to give you one example. I visited Iraq again after 30 years, uh, it was uh, about uh, two weeks ago, uh, two years ago, sorry. And I was in Mosul and there I could see in the city center that the ICRC had helped a woman, to kickstart a small textile workshop in her basement which because the house was destroyed. And after a while, she had started to hire up to eight other persons, mainly widows, by the way, uh, of single-headed households, young widows of single-headed households. And uh, when I discussed with her, she told me, you know, I had a textile factory, which was quite large, in the outskirts of Mosul before the conflict. And with this cash assistance, I could buy again a some basic material, but I know the job. I know the business. What I need now is to be able to scale up and to go beyond the Mosul region and possibly start to reestablish my trade links within and outside Iraq. So it's just one example, which is a multiplying factor to help people who have been directly affected to, to restore their livelihood. Another example is I was more recently in Niger in Agadez in the north and there we had we help people with disabilities to have a prosthesis or thesis and regain mobility and then we tried to help them regain also income generating opportunities with you know in workshops for repair for men or also some textile activities for women when i was there it was amazing because these women actually they had shifted immediately to produce Face masks, as the COVID-19 pandemic started, and they were starting to really sell and market these face masks in, in ever, you know, a larger web of markets where we have also to help in the in supply chains. So, in sum, I think it's, it's trade is a lifeline for vulnerable people in conflict-ridden and fragile states, and I think that we need to partner across sectors uh, beyond the humanitarian community, including the private sector, development actors. The academic community to devise best-fit solutions depending on the on the environment and also to engage in in vocational training and, and the rest. So I would say, in a nutshell, this is what is my own take nowadays uh, with regard to the
0: role of trade. Thank you, Gilles. And what do you think is the role of the private sector in responding to some of these multiple? humanitarian shocks that uh, many of these fragile and conflict-affected states are faced with?
1: Well, the private sector, as you know, is very broad and diverse. And uh, what I see in conflict regions is twofold. Uh, One is the necessity to preserve and restore micro-enterprises, small and medium-sized domestic companies. And then when I look at multinational companies, most of them tend to leave the place when you have the active conflict. One issue is how do you attract them back after the hostilities. But the other is that you still have a number of extractive industries that stay there because simply of geology, that the natural resources they exploit is in the subsoil. And in these cases, uh, you know, uh, of course, it entails a lot of complex ethical and legal issues to operate in such challenging environment not least with regard to security management which should comply with international humanitarian law and or human rights law so for instance together with the DCAF which is the Geneva center for the democratisation of armed forces with the ICC we have developed a handbook for companies on what they should really you know look at and abide by in order to manage their security in a way which is consistent with human rights and international humanitarian law, and even go to to offer training uh, modules on properly dealing with the question of security, which often involve contacts with armed forces and, and security forces. And we do this because we do, as ICRC, also train Security forces and armed forces around the world on international humanitarian law. So, this is one of our mandates. Now, if I turn to small and medium sized enterprises, mainly domestic enterprises, what we need is to try to maintain or, as soon as possible, revive their activities, revive markets, and the local uh, economic fabrics. So, what we do is that we look at value chains. And then from there, we do Market programming. I will give you just one or two, three examples. In Iraq, we have supported the resumption of grape cultivation to produce and market, then also dry grapes, because we saw that in one area it was really a great opportunity through a supply chain analysis, uh, connecting to to trading networks. Uh, in Myanmar, we identified vulnerable communities. For with vulnerable communities, an opportunity to boost groundnut cultivation and trade, or to resume groundnut cultivation, transformation, and trade. And finally, in Yemen, we have helped to restore and develop beekeeping and, and uh, the production of honey for sale in, first in the first in the region and then beyond. Now, when I discuss with development finance institution or investment agencies, I often hear that for them, there is a lack of bankable projects in fragile and conflict-affected countries. So how to connect the dots between what we provide as humanitarian at the very local level, where we see opportunities to kickstart business ventures, production, and I would say more multilateral international organizations that tend to operate more bottom-up. I think this is a great area where we can improve. There is a vast, untapped, uh, opportunities, And one thing maybe which is a bottleneck is sometimes the, I would say, the training of individual entrepreneurs in fragile and conflict contexts with regards to basic accounting and, and business skills. Recently, I was in Benghazi in Libya in June, and I, I participated in a training session in a business school where a lot of victims of the recent conflict in Benghazi were taking uh, basic skills, acquiring basic skills, growing a business plan, having a proper management uh, of, of accounting and financial uh, uh, dealings in order to have the skills to develop their, their business plan. But they All of them, they had very precise ideas of what they wanted to develop. So you see... I think uh, we can really do much more in partnerships in West Africa, which is a region, well, very dear to you. We have, for instance, partnered with the Tony Elumelu Foundation to help and support young entrepreneurs from conflict-ridden states who can also benefit from this training to then present bankable projects for microfinance and microinsurance schemes that would be helpful to scale up because scaling up is always a challenge.
0: Absolutely Thank you, Gilles Now, I would like us to turn to your book First, congratulations on your newest book Humanitarian Economics, War, Disaster, and the Global Aid Market You are listening to Trade for Peace Brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program We will be right back after a short break Welcome back to Trade for Peace. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about what is humanitarian economics and how does it relate to the concept of trade for peace?
1: You know, as I wrote the book, I, of course, have my own idea of what is humanitarian economics, but you put me a question which requires that I reflect on, on what it means for trade for peace. So humanitarian economics is simply applying economic tools and methods to make sense of the reality, the social reality in armed conflicts and other disaster situations. And it can also make sense of what I call dynamics on the aid market, which are also important to understand. So it focuses also on political economy dynamics, that are quite prevalent in fragile and conflict contexts, so that we can factor these elements in any, I would say, policy-orientation solution that, that we devise. So I think in terms of how it relates for trade for peace, I can think of a number of interactions. First, I think humanitarian economics shed lights on how trade can support the combing mechanisms and resilience strategies of what I referred to in the chapter on survival economics, mm. the strategies by, by conflict-affected people. Trade opens opportunities for, for people to make ends meet again, I think, and this, in a, importantly, in a dignified manner. And I think the few examples I, I gave you just before illustrate a bit that. Second, in a chapter of my book that deals with terrorism economics, I examined at length the issue of countering the financing of terrorism. And if you look at the consequences of economic sanctions today, under the lens of humanitarian economics, you come to revisit some of the multifaceted consequences of various sanctions regime, which by the way, as I've seen, affect quite a number of WTO members, but also exceeding countries. For example, the way economic actors circumvent sanctions tend to strengthen informal and often illegal networks. And actually, these networks sometimes gain a vested interest in the perpetuation of conflict, and thus become peace spoilers when we try to consolidate peace. Besides, I think that the persistence of such illegal economic networks after the peace has been signed, when the guns fall silent, can really jeopardize the consolidation of peace. So I think this humanitarian economics can help to rethink some of the way we regulate trades in, in certain jurisdictions with a broader perspective on the overall consequences. But whatever the the consequences, I think it is important, at, at least for the ICRC, to stress that under international humanitarian law, states have a responsibility to ensure that principled humanitarian organizations can provide assistance to those it needs. So it means carving out the necessary exemptions in sanctioned regimes. Another interesting contribution, if I think of humanitarian ec- economics in support of trade for peace... Maybe relate relates to to new financial instruments. New financial instruments to deal with conflict and disaster risks such as a number of uh, disaster risk-linked securities, catastrophe bonds, but also what we have launched at the ICRC, humanitarian impact bonds, which can really help kickstart productive activities or restore basic services. And I think this, in turn, contribute to, to providing this enabling environment for
0: peace. Thank you, G, for your response. And I recommend everyone to read G's latest book, Humanitarian Economics, War, Disaster in the Global Aid Market. Now, I would like us to turn to the WTO accessions. As you have been heavily involved in the WTO negotiations since leading the GATT negotiations for the Swiss State Secretary for Economic Affairs. In your view, how do you see WTO accession as a means of harnessing post-conflict recovery and a means to contribute to the process of building back better?
1: Very good question, Axel. I was just looking at the list of uh, exceeding countries or countries, you know, having made a bid to access the WTO, and I noticed striking that if we consider the top operation, the 10 largest operation of the ICRC worldwide. Seven of them are in countries currently under the WTO accession process. You can think of Ethiopia, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, South Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. So I see a lot of relevance there. Now, I will be a bit humble with regard to your question of what I can draw, because I had the chance to participate but long, long time ago to accession processes to the GATT. Uh, I I had the chance to participate in the working groups uh, dealing with China's accession, Russia's accession, and a few others. So it traces back a bit. But what I learned also as I then went to Vietnam for a number of years to assist Vietnam in its accession process, I would see two dimensions that uh, which are important ways in which the process of accession have to build. And you were saying building back better. I would say build forwards better, because it's moving uh, somewhere else. So building forward better, first on the domestic front. Uh, you see accession process strengthens the inter-ministerial collaboration, brings officials from different offices and different ministries to on a very regular basis to deal with the, all the intricacies of accession process. It also contributes to establish greater consultations between the state and private constituencies, and all this I think is very useful in fragile contexts to strengthen a bit the polity and the, the social publics. Second, I think that acceding to the WTO confers greater predictability and greater stability to trade relations with with major partners, which is certainly beneficial to. Countries that are in need of greater stability or stabilization. So these are the two elements that I would mention. One is very much on the domestic front, one is related to international trade relations.
0: Well, thank you, Gilles, for this thought-provoking conversation. We've come to the end of our conversation. And I often like to ask our guests, in one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why?
1: A triple win-win. So triple wins, which would be triple win-win-win-win, is what I would summarize in just uh, you know one word. Triple win, because first, it's a humanitarian win to sustain the livelihoods of uh, affected communities and people. Second, it's a development win to restore market and revive uh, economic opportunities. And thirdly, it's a peace-building win to reconnect parties and, have the chance to reconnect them around mutual interests.
0: That was Dr. Gilles Cabonnier, Vice President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. Gilles, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. And many thanks to our listeners for tuning in to today's episode, Trade and Sustainable Livelihood in Fragile Contexts. You have been listening to Trade for Peace brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at WTO.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.